deserves my love. He deserves my life. Amen. That's why we're here. That is why we gather this morning. And we gather for these important announcements. <laughs> First of all, just in case you didn't know, and I'm a little echoey loud. Maybe bring me down just a bit, Susan. Thank you. First of all, good morning. And secondly, happy birthday to Josiah. That is today. Yep, he is turning 14. We're so excited for him. <laughs> no, today is the big 3-0. That's right. He can now start his public ministry. So, happy birthday. Uh, we have some events happening. Mark your calendars, April 15th and May 15th. So, ladies, it's really easy to remember. April 15th, New Women's Bible Study, beginning on Thursdays at 10 a.m., and it is on the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. So there will be childcare available, and you can find out more about that either online or talking to uh, Brandy about that. May 15th, then, is the Women's Spring Wreath event. We're going to make some spring wreaths, so that should be fun. May 1st is Children's Ministry Training. If you are currently serving in the children's ministry or you're interested in being involved, that, that is a date to put on the calendar. You can sign up for that, and lunch will be provided. And you can talk to Cam for more info like on that. Both these things you can also sign up online. So that, is, that takes care of the important announcements. Now would you open up your Bibles to the book of Luke. I know that on Wednesday we headed back into Numbers. It was Really cool to be back there and, and journeying with the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. And we'll be back there on Wednesday night. However, this morning, we're not going to leave the resurrection too quickly. Luke chapter 24, picking up in verse 44. Luke 24 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven." And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Oh, praise God. Lord, would you this morning open our minds to understand the scriptures that you have spoken, that you have inspired, and man has written down. We ask, Father, you would help us to hear the words spoken by Jesus in the resurrection. Lord Jesus we have already acknowledged you're here with us this morning. And so we pray that you'd help us to hear you clearly. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Christ is risen. Yes, you remembered. Now, someone might say, um, Rick, wasn't that last week? To which I would say, technically, it was 1989 years ago, give or take. But for Jesus' people, his resurrection is the living hope. It's never a last Sunday hope or a yesterday hope or sometime last year hope. It is a living hope, continual and ongoing every moment of every day. Truly, it breathes life into our hearts. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You have your reservation. It's there for you. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed. By various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. Let's try that again, shall we? Christ is risen. Amen. And again, this is our living hope because, because what happened yesterday looks to tomorrow making hope alive today. What happened yesterday looks to tomorrow making hope alive today. Now, every year, Easter Sunday comes and goes, like Christmas or the last day of summer, and it's quickly forgotten as we get back down to real life, so-called, but this morning, this morning, I want to do a little debrief. I've been thinking about this since last Sunday. The since after we finished our worship and teaching and that time together. And it was a glorious day. And I went home and literally that afternoon, I began feeling like, you know, I'm not done. There's more that we need to talk about. There are other things here. And while, as I said earlier, I love the book of Numbers, want to get back to it. And we did on Wednesday and we will this Wednesday. But... There's more that we needed to hear. I believe God put that on my heart for a reason so that this morning we could do a little resurrection debrief. We can think through and really listen in on the resurrection debriefings of Jesus himself. That is to pause and hear what he felt was most important to speak in the moments and the meetings he shared with his followers after his resurrection. So let's begin by getting some things in order. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but, but think through with me the order of the meetings, the order of the moments as people began to see Jesus and how it took place and how it happened. We'll just run through this as quickly as I can, but Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were first to the tomb. Luke names Mary Mag, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Mary Mag, that's my nickname for her, and the other women, that's Luke 24, verses 1 and 2, and then Mark 
16 verses 1 through 3, we hear the names and we hear the additional name of Salome. And then John, John just hones in on Mary's story. Point is, the women were first to the tomb. The women were the first ones there. So let's turn over to John chapter 20 right now. John chapter 20. I'm going to try and make some sense of something, too. If you read the different gospel accounts, you say, well, was it Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? Was it Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and the other women? Was Salome there? Was it just Mary? Which one is it? If I read John, it's just Mary. If I read Matthew, it's Mary and the other women. So which is it? Well, to understand... We'll walk through some of this. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. While it was still dark and seized the tomb already taken away, or the stone already taken away from the tomb. By the way, note in John's narrative, and it's so cool, it's all present tense. So he writes it in the moment. That is, in verse 1, if you're reading again, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb. While it is still dark and sees the stone taken away from the tomb. So she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Verse 4 of chapter 20, I've told you many times, cracks me up. John wants you to be sure to know that he won the race. But verse 5 says, And stooping and looking in, he sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also comes, following him, entering the tomb, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed, and it does change right there. The whole thing up to that point is written in the present tense, and it gives you the sense of immediately being there until you get to verse 8. And in verse 8, John, by his own testimony, saw and believed. And the word saw there is in the Greek errorist tense, which gives it a sense of something absolute. Not only is it something he sees in the moment, but it's something he saw in his memory. And in the aorist tense, it's, it's just, it's not limited. It's an absolute, this is true, this assuredly happened. I saw that tomb empty. But neither man had yet seen Jesus. Verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. Note that they went away again to their homes. Keep that in mind. Verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna have to restrain myself a little bit this morning from talking about every nuance of every verse because we're gonna cover a lot of verses today. But I'll just tell you in this one, <laughs> two angels at the head and one at the feet, just like the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
John paints a picture that he wants us to see. Verse 13, and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She just answers the angels. If angels speak to me, my first response is, ha, oh. but, but Mary, Mary just answers, I, because she has a greater concern. She has a deeper passion. She has a, a greater shock, if you will, than seeing angels, and that is seeing that the body is not there. Where have they taken my Lord? She wants to know. And when she had said this, she turned around and sees Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Hey, because it was in a garden. The tomb was in a garden. It was a garden tomb, which I listened. I was just listening this morning to John Corson's teaching last Sunday, and he points out something beautiful. She sees him thinking he's a gardener because they're in a garden. Jesus resurrected in a garden, the last Adam. First Adam sinned in the garden. The last Adam was resurrected in a garden. Isn't that beautiful? And she sees him standing there. She supposes he's the gardener. She says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Did you all hear that Maria Daly um, just won an American record for lifting, for weightlifting? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know all the details. I just heard that yesterday this happened, and this was posted up. Wow. I, I'm guessing Mary Magdalene was no Maria Daly. So when she says, show me where the body is and I will take him away, okay, you're not thinking straight, Mary. <laughs> you're going to lift the body of Jesus. But verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and says to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Actually, it means master teacher. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Rabuni. It's Mary speaking in this moment it's master teacher, exalted teacher. And the Bible says it means teacher, which is didaskalos, and didaskalos means authoritative teacher. And she speaks this the other time it's spoken by a blind man who says, Rabuni, you, you can give me sight. The master teacher. I love verse 17. Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me, <laughs> for I have yet, not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene comes announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. And of course they thought, well, that's just crazy Mary. Stop clinging to me. It's not because he was some kind of ethereal spirit and he didn't want her to find out. It's, it's that she was hanging on him. And he literally was saying, hey, it's all right, it's all right. You don't have to cling to me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here, Mary. So Mary Magdalene is the first person to behold Jesus in his resurrection. Then, of course, you recall Peter had his moment. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. We talked about that last week. By the way, you can add to that. I mentioned that we just have the one mention in Scripture that there, this meeting happened. Well, actually, there's a second one I completely spaced on. 
We also have the testimony of the two winded travelers having gone round trip to Emmaus and back. And as they come into the room, and we'll see more of this in a moment, Luke 24, verse 34, they say, the Lord really has risen and appeared to Simon. Well, they said that Sunday evening. Therefore, during the day, at some point Sunday, the Lord had appeared to Simon. He appeared, appeared first to Mary, and then second, he appeared to Peter. It's the Peter moment we talked about last week. And, and what's marvelous is there's also a Mary moment. So ladies, there's a Mary moment, and men, there's a, a Peter moment. We all get our moment. That opportunity to be one-on-one with Jesus, but of course, the Peter moment is not described in any length. We know it happened, We don't know what was said. So deeply personal, kept in the heart of Peter, it is never described, not even by him. I remind you, we all need those moments. We need the Peter moment, the Mary moment, the moment alone with Jesus to recognize him and call him Rabuni, master teacher, exalted teacher, authoritative one in my life, and to interact personally with him as much as we interact congregationally together with him as well. We all need those moments. So Mary, Mary saw him, Peter saw him. Then then number three, Jesus appears to the rest of the women. And this is where it gets really interesting in in the timeline of the day. The rest of the women who may have been returning from the tomb for the second time. And I just ask you to consider this possibility because Matthew chapter 28 verse 9 says, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Which I think is really cool. He says, Let's meet up in Galilee. Not in Jerusalem. Not in the high holy halls of the temple. I'll meet you outdoors. I'll meet you by the sea. Let's go where it's quiet, and I I will be there. But listen, if the Resurrection Sunday mashup is confusing with all its back and forth and who was where at what time and when did he appear to who and how do we figure this out, again, Mary Magdalene and then Peter and then the rest of the women, but imagine being there. If you think it's a little confusing for us to try and put the narrative together across the four Gospels, What was the day like to actually be among them? To be there with the apostles and the followers as word begins to spread among them early in the morning on Sunday, the body's gone. He's not there. Wait, Mary says she's seen him. Wait, the women are now reporting they've seen him. Peter hadn't reported it yet. The treasury of scripture knowledge says we can assume that the women made two different visits to the tomb that morning. And in consequence of that, they gave two distinct reports to the disciples. Three, if you add in Mary's report, and that Mary Magdalene with the other Mary and Salome set out not only early, but as Mark 16 verse 2 says, very early. In fact, it's a different phrase in the Greek. They set out liam proi, which is very early, before the time that was appointed to meet Joanna and the other women there, as described in Luke 24. So what I'm saying is, And many conservative Bible scholars agree that this would align the many disparate accounts of the Gospels, that there were multiple trips to the tomb that morning. Of course there would be. What would we do? Would we just all sit in a room waiting to find out? We, like Peter and John and Mary, and we would be running back and forth. We'll go check it again. 
Well, I don't know. There was nobody there the last time. Well, maybe he's back. It's like when you open the refrigerator door. You know what I'm talking about. You, you, you want something to eat, so you open the door, and there's nothing there. The fridge could be full, by the way, but you don't see anything that you want to eat, so you close the door. And you wait a minute, and then you open it again, as if something's going to appear. Back to the tomb, as if the body's going to miraculously be there, or maybe we just didn't see it the first time. <laughs> Back and forth, running to the tomb, trying to figure out what, what's going on. Man, the floored followers are just trying to figure it out. Where is he? Where's the body? What's happening? We'd be doing the same thing. So don't think of Resurrection Sunday as this very clear-cut, look, they're in the room, and the women came. No, I mean, it, it must have just been a rush of emotion and confusion and frustration. What is going on here? Turn to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, and I hope you follow with me through all of this this morning. So he met Mary. He met Peter. He met with the women, and then... For the fourth appearance, Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's seven miles west, maybe a little bit north of Jerusalem. So they're headed that direction, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached them and began traveling with them. I just love Jesus' style. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. Now Jesus is not toying with them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is giving them a chance to come to faith. I love that about God. He never forces faith. He allows us to come to it. He provides for it he even gives us faith but he allows it to begin to work in us he'll take his time as he needs to so they stood still looking sad one of them named cleopas answered and said to him are you the only one visiting jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days and if that's not an ironic statement i'm not sure what is are you the only one to know what went on and he said to them what things and they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and of the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it exactly as the women had also said, but, he, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Oh, foolish men. Anoatoi. Foolish men. It, it translates, oh, men lacking perception. He's not calling them morons. 
He's saying, you don't understand. And then he says, they're slow of heart. Slow of heart. It's bradice te cardia. Bradice te cardia. I've got low blood pressure. Just let you know. My blood pressure, in fact, just last week, uh, was at the doctor and, and just, you know, routine checkup and took my blood pressure and it was 98 over 62. That's why I'm so chill. <laughs> Here's the thing. The blood pressure drops below 90 over 60 and you are in the danger zone. You've got bradycardia. You are slow of heart. Dr. Luke uses that term, that terminology here when Jesus says, oh, men, foolish men, slow of heart. You got bradycardia, guys. You know what the symptoms of bradycardia are or, or what happens when that blood pressure drops that low? Dizziness and, and, and chest pain and confusion and fainting spells and ultimately death. You don't want to be slow of heart too long. <laughs> the ability to perceive and to believe here, Jesus makes it very clear, as he always does, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. You're just not ticking fast enough. So, so Lord, then what is the cure for bradycardia? What is the cure for those who are slow of heart to believe? He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That is the prescription for the slow of heart. The living and active word of God. Jesus is right there, could have said anything, but what he did was take them back into the scriptures and show them and explain to them what had already been spoken about him. And that jump starts their hearts because the scriptures cut to the heart because as Jesus said in John 5, 39, it is these that testify about me. Get to the word. If you're feeling a little slow of heart or perhaps Foolish in understanding, you're lacking perception, you don't know what's going on. Lord, why are things the way they are? Get to the word. Go back to the word. If you're feeling a little dizzy in your faith or confusion, maybe you've had some fainting spells of faith, get back to the word. And by the way, get people to the word. Friends, family. Dear sister came up to me Wednesday night and, and was talking to me about, about her family and, and what was going on there. And, and she said, I, I bought my son-in-law a Bible. Was that the right thing to do? <laughs> I'm like, yes. She said, I'm not even sure. About, I, I, want, I want to say the right thing. I'm not sure what the right thing is to say. I'm like, you did the best thing you could possibly do. You handed him the word of God. That's what starts a heart. That's what pumps us up. So... Here they go. Verse 28, continuing, they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. Now, again, he's not playing with them. He's allowing their faith to set in. He's explained what happened according to the scriptures. He's allowing that to sink in to their hearts. So he's going to continue, allowing them the opportunity to ask him to stay, and they urged him, verse 29, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. <laughs> Again, not playing games. So what did he just do? We often like to say, he, he broke bread. It's communion. And that's what they understood. No, it's not. Because Passover had just happened a few days before, where he broke bread before the apostles, 
And that was just with the apostles where he transformed it into the new covenant. No, what, what's happening here when he takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to them, what opens their eyes, aside from the spirit moving, is the fact that this is the one who feeds the 5,000. This is the one who gives bread to the hungry. This is the bread of heaven. And they see him and he's gone. They recognize him and he's not there any longer. And they said to one another, note this, verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? They go from bradycardia to heartburn. It's a good kind of heartburn. To hearts aflame, hearts on fire. Verse 30, uh, let's see, verse 33, yeah, continuing. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Now listen, it's about a two-hour journey on foot, uh, so about seven miles. And if you're just walking at a normal pace, it takes about two hours to get from Jerusalem down to and out to Emmaus. So two hours there, they see Jesus, they come running back. So maybe less than two hours because they're, they're in a hurry now, hour and a half, maybe, maybe an hour. They come flying back into Jerusalem. And what that tells us is that Jesus must have been hot on their heels. Because verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Number five, in the appearances of Jesus, he appears to almost all the disciples gathered there together. Five, listen, five, listen, five appearances of Jesus on day one. Do you realize that? Five times he appeared to five different, either a couple individuals, the women, the men on the road to Emmaus, and now finally all of them gathered together five times on the first day out of the tomb. If I am sick for three days, I am canceling all my appointments on the first day back to the office. I ain't having no five appointments when I'm just back up on my feet. I gotta go work back into it, right? But Jesus, obviously passionate, obviously energized by the joy set before him, is back on mission with no time to waste. The sixth appearance of Jesus happened a week later. He appears again to the disciples, and this time, John chapter 20, Thomas is there. We'll come back to that story. And then Jesus, after that, we're told, appears at a gathering of 500. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So this is one appearance where all 500 saw him at the same time. All 500 could attest to, could witness to the fact, yeah, we were all there. And we all saw him. And Paul says that. He says, most of whom remain until now, but some, some have fallen asleep. Some have died. That's an outrageous claim for Paul to make. For him to write and send out in that letter to Corinth. An easily disproven claim of the resurrection of Jesus. Not only is he resurrected, not only did Mary see him, and Peter saw him, and the women saw him, and the disciples saw him. Not only did the two men on the road to Emmaus, not only did, we then, did they then see him a week later. 
But at one point, 500 people saw him, and most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Go check the witnesses. All they needed to do was send out a journalist from CNN to try and disprove this. <laughs> and they could find one, just one, all they needed was just one person to recant and say, nah, it really didn't happen. But none did. Joseph Smith had three witnesses of the gold plates from which he claimed to have translated the Book of Mormon. Three witnesses who said, yes, we saw the gold plates that he claimed contained these words. All three witnesses recanted before they died. All three said, no, actually, we didn't see it, leaving it down to just Joseph Smith to make that crazy claim. 500 saw him at once. See how intentional God is in making sure the witnesses know what really took place. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Paul continues and says, then he appeared to James, technically Jacob. As I've said to you before, and I know it can be confusing, but the name James throughout the Bible is Jacob. That's the actual name. We switched it to James. It got anglicized with the King James translation and, and following. And so we've called him James ever since, but that's not his name. His name's Jacob. And so he appeared to Jacob and then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the eighth post-resurrection appearance that we know about was to Jacob. Which Jacob? Jesus' brother. And then finally, to all the apostles prior to his ascension, and then number 10 in this list, post-ascension, he appears to Paul himself. As Paul talks about in Acts chapter 9. What's interesting to me, why does Paul include Jacob, James, and himself in this listing of post-resurrection appearances? And the answer is very simple. Neither this Jacob, half-brother of Jesus, nor Paul were believers or followers of Jesus before the resurrection. Jesus' own brother, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little five-chapter book at the end of the New Testament, calls himself, in James chapter 1, verse 1, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Jesus' half-brother. Did not believe in him prior to the resurrection. And though after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, he believed then and from then on. Paul himself, as a witness of the resurrected Christ, saw Jesus, heard Jesus, calls himself one who is untimely born. We could say he was the runt of the church <laughs> and, and previously a fierce oppressor and persecutor of Christians. But Paul says, Jacob, who... who served in the early church, who wrote that letter, Paul himself, were not believers pre-resurrection. But afterwards, this changed their lives. Now, Jesus appeared in other visions that you can read in the book of Acts, appeared to Ananias, appeared to Paul another time that we know about, culminating then 60 years later in the glorious and literally breathtaking Revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, which God gave to him to show, gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must, must soon take place. Breathtaking because John fell down dead, passed out cold. And Jesus picked him up and said, it's all right, don't be afraid. I was dead, and now I'm alive. 
And so John saw him in the Revelation. All these meetings happened because first and foremost, Jesus loved his people. He just loved them. But secondly, Jesus sought to establish their faith to go into all the world as his witnesses. These post-resurrection appearances were about the establishment of the faith he had been working on in them for three years prior. And now, with this glorious event, it wasn't just, you know, resurrection and I'm out of there. It was resurrection and now let's, let's establish things. Let's prepare you. So with that in mind, I want to stay pre-ascension for the rest of our time this morning. Stay in the 40 days in between his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven to listen in on just four, four follow-ups with his followers, if you will. The post-resurrection debriefings of Jesus. And to begin with, we go back to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. And the first debrief, and I will just give you a, a line to jot down if you're a note taker. The first debrief is the proposition of peace. The proposition of peace. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. Why would the first word out of his mouth be peace? Because they needed it. Think about the room in the moment. The men from Emmaus have just returned. The women, they've been stirred up. They've been talking about it. Now the men come running in. You're not going to believe this. Because I know, because you didn't believe the women before, but we can support now what they said. And they're telling these things, and in the room, it must have been charged with emotion and frustration among those who hadn't seen him and sorrow among those who couldn't wrap their brains around it and joy among those who had seen them trying to convince the others this crazy moment in this room. And Jesus steps in and goes, peace, <laughs> shalom. Wow. Enter Jesus, who offers so much more than just a greeting. It is the antidote to their anxiety. Peace. Peace I leave with you, he had said just three days before. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then Jesus begins to explain this peace to them. Verse 37 says, they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing the Spirit. So obviously they didn't receive peace immediately. Peace, ah! But peace was the objective. You could have heard a pin drop. I think perhaps with every jaw in the room. <laughs> Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Has he said that to you recently? Maybe you need to hear him say that to get that peace to return to the slow heart peace why are you troubled why do doubts arise in your hearts remember this is the fifth appearance of the day five is the number of grace we know that the fifth appearance of the day what does it take to erase doubt how many times did he need to appear before they would start to believe that he really was alive. What does it take in your life, in my life? How many times do I need to see Jesus in action to calm my troubled heart? 
Now I can tell you, I've seen Jesus in action so many times over the last 30 years of my life, especially, and times before that, even as a kid. I can tell you I've seen Jesus in action, and yet I still find myself anxious. I'm still landed in the place of a troubled heart going, oh Lord, how are we going to do this? Have you not seen him risen? What does it take? Verse 39, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, one of the things he's doing, obviously, is proving to them that he is full bodily resurrected. That he's not just a ghost, a specter, a spirit. This is, this is me, guys. I'm here. Touch my hands. Look at my feet. I, I, I'm here among you. A, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood. Can't you see that I'm, this is the deal. Hey, this is such good news because this is the picture of our resurrection. Understand, he's the first fruits. And after that, those who are alive or those who are Christ at his coming. So resurrection, this is resurrection. Not just Jesus' resurrection, this is your resurrection and mine. It is full body, soul, and spirit. Now for those of you saying, but I don't want this body, don't worry, it'll be better. (laughs) You're going to be glorified, right? Raised up, but complete and whole and, and, and and eternal, body, soul, and spirit. But note this, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, don't you guys recognize me? Hey, it's me. Don't you, don't you see, look at me. He directs them to the permanent scars of his crucifixion. See, Jesus knows what works faith. Some have wondered if the brutality of the recent beatings in the crucifixion had left Jesus unrecognizable or had literally changed his visage, his face, so that when they saw him, they didn't recognize him. That that's why Mary didn't recognize him when she saw him. I submit to you, Mary didn't recognize him because her eyes were flooded with tears and she couldn't at that point accept or even believe that he was alive. So she was all blurred up and tearful and just did not realize it was him. The two men on the road to Emmaus, I suggest to you that they were prevented, as the Bible says, from recognizing him. Not because his face was all swollen and bruised up. Isaiah 50 verse 6, of course, does tell us, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. So we know Jesus had a beard because they tore it out. Isaiah 54, verse 14, that tells us his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man or more than the son of man. And and while that's true, and while on the cross he would have then been unrecognizable, so beaten, so brutalized, yet I don't believe his resurrected face was swollen or bruised. See, See, resurrection to life is healing, real healing. We talk about healings in this world and we pray for healings and God be praised there are healings that take place but those are not real healings because they still will end in death. But this is real healing, resurrection, true healing. Now, what's interesting is the scars, however, remained. You think my scars are gonna remain, Rick? I I don't think so. But his did and his will. 
I think, for all eternity. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And I, I believe for myself that the, the scars on Jesus' hands and feet and side are permanent. But, but here's the point. For the sake of recognition, Jesus appealed not to, don't you recognize my face? No, he appealed to his wounds of sacrifice. His scars declare peace. His scars declare peace. When he says shalom, this is how I know it's not just a greeting. His scars declare peace. See, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus secured a positional peace for you and for me. A positional peace that we now have peace where before we did not have peace. So he's not just talking about a calm demeanor or a chill afternoon or a blood pressure of 98 over 62. He's talking about an action. This is, there's now no more war because there's no more sin. That has been taken away and now I am at peace with God. Verse 41 while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. And so again, he proved he was flesh and blood. But here's something else about the resurrected body of Jesus. As he's there in the room with them, he's clearly flesh and blood, but he's resurrected, so there's something different. He is body, soul, and spirit. And yet, the Gospel of John tells us in John 20, verse 19, that the doors were blocked and locked. That's what the word means where you see the doors were closed. They were blocked because the disciples inside were fearful. You hear the guys on the road to Emmaus, they come back, pounding on the door, open, move, move the thing across, get the bookshelf out of the way, open the door, get, get him in, close the door, put the bookshelf back, lock it up tight. They're in fear for their lives. And suddenly Jesus is just there. See, now this is the cool thing about the resurrected body. These bodies will be different. Full, full bodily resurrection, and yet something changed. First Corinthians chapter 15, let me read this to you. Over in verse 35, the apostle Paul says, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Great question. Paul says, you fool. <laughs> In other words, that's a dumb question. No, he, he says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own, a new body. You know, as the seed goes in and dies, it doesn't crop up and you go, hey, look, a wheat seed. You say, look, a stalk of wheat. There's life from the dead. It's still physical. There is still tangible to it, but it's changed, right? It's different. Verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, so also is the resurrection of the body or of the dead. It's sown a perishable body, but it's raised an imperishable body. Still a body, but it's imperishable now. He, he says, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. 
So in a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. What's the point? In this first Sunday Eve meeting, first Sunday Eve meeting, we gain peace in our resurrection. That is, that our bodies will be raised imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. No door locked or blocked is going to keep you out if you want to be in the room. Something else wonderful happened at that first debrief that simply can't be missed. You need to turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, real quick. Turn in your Bibles there. For in that room, at that moment, as Jesus spoke peace to them, in John chapter 20, picking up in verse 19, it tells us again, it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, that again is locked and blocked, Shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and says to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, as Luke just told us, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And listen, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And I guarantee it was the sweetest breath ever smelled in the history of the world. As Jesus breathed on them to graphically show them, explain to them what was taking place, I'm giving you my spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. The apostles received before their resurrection just as we received before ours, the indwelling spirit of Christ. His spirit. Do you know why you need his Holy Spirit? I mean, we could go down a whole, probably several weeks of teachings on why we need the spirit of the living God. Let me give you, just give you one thing in context of what's happening right here. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of the living God, you cannot be raised from the dead. The spirit does the raising. You have to have the spirit indwelling you for your resurrection to take place. You don't have the spirit. You're not going to resurrect. You will actually be resurrected in the second resurrection. And that is not a resurrection you want to wait for. Because that is a resurrection, Revelation 20 tells us, unto judgment. But, but, filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, Romans 8, 11, If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's your peace. Talk about peace. You can't keep a good man down. I think we ought to change that. You cannot keep a spirit-filled man down. You cannot keep a spirit-filled woman down. From this point on, Jesus would always be with them, would always dwell in them forever, and would raise them up. And in verse 23, he goes on and says in this in this marvelous appearance, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It is so important to understand this because some think, oh, okay, so that's the apostolic gift to forgive or retain sins. Only God can forgive sin. I mean, we can forgive one another because he has forgiven us. But what does this mean? 
literally translated, it is because they've been forgiven, you will be able to forgive. Because they've been retained, you will be able to retain them. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that they would be functioning in full alignment with the Holy Spirit who forgives or retains sins depending on the heart of the person. Are you with me on that? The Holy Spirit forgives sins. God is the forgiver of sins. And therefore, what he's saying is if you forgive someone their sins, it's because they have been forgiven. You're in alignment with the Holy Spirit. If you retain someone's sin. It's because those sins have been retained by the Lord. You're in alignment with God the Father. It's the same thing Jesus said back at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 16, 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Because you can't bind or loose anything that hasn't already been done, been done in the heavenly places. You can't do what the Lord hasn't already done. So you cannot forgive sin unless the Lord has already forgiven nor can you retain sin unless the Lord is, at current moment, retaining the sin. What does this tell us? It tells us, guess what? We're not doing anything God hasn't already taken care of. I'm not doing anything God hasn't already done. My role is to be in alignment with him and what he's doing. And if I am and I forgive, it's because the person has already been forgiven by the Lord. So put it this way. We don't provide forgiveness. We proclaim it. We don't decide on sinfulness, but we do declare it, specifically with the word of God. Those are those moments, by the way, where I'm teaching on something, perhaps out of Romans chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, and people get real uncomfortable. He's tagging me. Or as Deb likes to say, he's preaching at me. Right? No, I'm not. I'm just declaring the word, which is declaring the sin. That's where the conviction comes from. Well, well, a week went by. So we have that, that first debrief, which is, which is the proposition of peace. Peace, peace, a peace with God because of the wounds of Christ, a peace knowing our resurrected bodies are secured and will be raised up by the spirit who lives within us, a peace knowing his spirit is within us. God is here. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. Second debrief, the conviction of faith, the conviction of faith. Chapter 20 in John, continuing in verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, I like to call him T. Diddy, was not with them when Jesus came. That's going to get old eventually, but it still works. So Thomas isn't with them. Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means the twin. By the way, it's been suggested, I find this interesting, he wasn't called the twin because he had a twin. He was called the twin because he looked like Jesus. So they called him the twin. Perhaps. Thomas called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not Believe, and I've told you before, I think it's because Thomas was just too tore up. Don't give me false hope. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, that is, locked and blocked, and he stood in their midst and said, Shalom, peace 
be with you. And then he says to Thomas, and by the way, we're back now to the immediate, to the present tense. He says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And notice Jesus doesn't correct him. Thomas calls him God, blasphemy, unless it's true. My Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't say, nah, I'm just a son. <laughs> I'm actually kind of a second tier in the Trinity. Don't call me God. No, he receives the worship. And in verse 29, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. How much more blessed would they have been if they believed him before the crucifixion? Now, now really think this through. It still would have been hard to see Jesus go through all of that brutality, to watch the nails pierce his flesh, to, to see him raised up on the cross, and to see him mocked and scorned. That would have been very difficult, but they would have been without despair if they had believed him. They would have been without fear. They would have been without anxiety. There would not have been any hopelessness. They would have seen it. It would have been gut-wrenching, but they'd be like, he's going to be back on Sunday. This is horrible, but I recognize this must be done. The sacrificial lamb of the Passover must be killed. This has to take place. I get all that. I don't like seeing it. It hurts to even think about it, but hey, Easter Sunday's coming. Resurrection's right around the corner. If they had only believed before they saw. And what a week Tommy Boy had had. Thomas, T. Diddy, Tommy Boy. How blessed if Thomas had believed without seeing. See, he got to spend an entire week still not believing. An entire week still in sorrow. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, many of you know it well. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, men of old gained approval. They gained approval. How did the men of old gain approval? They believed in something they didn't see the outcome of. Abraham didn't see him, didn't see the land given to him, though it was. Isaac, Jacob, they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. All of those died in faith, as the Hebrew writer says, without receiving what was promised. They saw they didn't see. They believe without seeing. And same with you, same with me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing, listen, the outcome of our faith. It's not just blessed are those who believe without seeing Jesus. Now, that's part of it. But it's also you're blessed if you believe in the outcome that you have yet to see. There's great blessing in that. The conviction of faith, trust that God is going to get this done. God is going to see it through. Faith, it's, it's whether or not I see him, I know he's with me. And things are going to go down just as he said. That's the second debrief, the conviction of faith. Debrief number three takes place on the quiet shores of the Galilee, John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. When he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that would be Jacob and John, 
and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, who will also come with you? And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Not knowing what to do with himself, Peter goes back to what he knows, fishing. And he has no success. I think that's true many times with many people. When you try to go back to what you knew before Jesus, you just don't have a whole lot of success with it. It doesn't work like maybe you thought it used to work. There's been a change in your heart, and going back, it doesn't feel the same. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? You don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. This exact same thing had happened three years earlier in the same location on the Galilee, I'm convinced, where Jesus did the same thing with Peter. Can't catch any on the left side of the boat? Try the right side. And that's a great fishing technique. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Fully clothed. I mean, it's like you could hear him say, Sergeant Dan, and he dives in. This is the most Forrest Gump moment of Peter's life. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, bringing about a, they were about 100 yards away, dragging in the full net of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid. Jesus is always, by the way, waiting for you to join him for breakfast. He's always ready to receive you. And the fish is placed on it and bread, fish and bread. Well, that's a Jesus thing. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that, that you've now caught. So Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish. John points out, and I love this, you Bible students know this, 153. And all there were, though there were so many, the net was not torn. 153 fish. Why that number? Why that specific amount? Because in the Hebrew numerics, every Hebrew letter is a number. It's the same way in Greek. Every Greek number, like Roman numerals, well, Roman numerals aren't the same as letters, but the Hebrew letters are numbers. So if you place the number of each Hebrew letter, if you take 153 and write that out, it literally spells out, Ani Elohim, I am God. So cool. Jesus said, come have breakfast. And so none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and took the fish likewise. Now, this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's not the third time he was manifested, but the third time he was manifested to the disciples, just specifically to this grouping. Interesting. When they had finished breakfast, Simon, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and here's where we start to get into this third debrief. Watch this. And I know many of you have heard this, but there's, there's a single point you got to get. Jesus said to Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, and I'm, I'm going to read this the way it reads in the Greek, okay? So for the word love, I'm going to use the word, and then you'll see. Simon, son of John, do you have brotherly love for me more than these? Philadelphia, phileo is the word there. 
do you have brotherly love more than these? And he's, or no, 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 I'm sorry, that's wrong. Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Do you have unconditional love for me more than anybody else? And Peter responds and says, you know that I have Philadelphia love for you. Do you unconditionally love me? You know I have brotherly love for you. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you have unconditional love for me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a brother. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me like a brother? (laughs) Meets Peter right where he is. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me like a brother? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you like a brother. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three denials, right, of Peter, and now three love calls. And, and you've no doubt heard that, that connection made. Jesus asked for unconditional love. Peter's only capable of giving brotherly love. You've probably heard that, and, and that Jesus takes Peter where he is. But listen, third debrief is what I call the profession of love, the profession of love. Here's the big idea. It was on that very same beach three years earlier that Jesus said to Peter, Luke chapter 5, verse 10, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching love, uh, catching men You will be catching men. You will be catching men. I've always thought of this debrief as a debrief of restoration. Jesus is restoring Peter back to ministry. I think it's more than that. I think it's really about profession. The profession of love. What do you mean? I mean his occupation. Peter, you're not a fisherman. You're a fisher of men. That's what I need you to see, what I need you to understand. That, that, that when you love Jesus, for you and for me, when you love Jesus, you do not go back to what you know. You go forward with who you know. Your occupation changes. Your profession now becomes a profession of love. If you were a teacher before you got saved, guess what? You're a disciple maker now. Can't do that in the public schools. Talk to Jesus. Tend his lambs. If you were a bus driver before you got saved, guess what you are now? A shepherd. <laughs> so shepherd his sheep. And if you happen to have been a fisherman, now you're a fisher of men. Feed his sheep because the profession of love changes everything. And to prove it, go further. Jesus said, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And he said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter's life would end in a profession of agape love. All he could bring right now is brotherly. He still is trying to wrap his brain and his mind around this. Still a bit slow of heart, you could say. But he would die not with brotherly love, but in agape love for Jesus, who said, greater love has no one than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for Peter. Guess what? Peter would lay down his life for Jesus. He would show pure agape 
love. So in the first debrief, we have the proposition of peace. And the second, we have the conviction of faith. Jesus teaching these things. In this third debrief, it's all about the profession of love. You have a new occupation in Jesus Christ. The old occupation is now redeemed for use in the kingdom. It's all forward thinking, forward going. And finally, number four, the last debrief is what I would call a commission of grace. A commission of grace. Just listen to these. I'm going to read through them. Let Jesus speak these words to you. Matthew 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. So they're up in Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. These will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover And so when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. By the way, let me just tell you something real quickly about Mark's ending, the ending of Mark's gospel. It's been challenged. In fact, I imagine in your Bible it probably has some kind of little notations or anything, like verse 9 begins in parentheses, and verse 20 ends with parentheses, and so they're saying verse 9 to 20, eh, something different, not sure it should even be here. And that's because some of the later manuscripts don't contain it. In fact, the, the, the oldest manuscripts of Mark that we have don't contain verses 9 through 20. However, you need to know that verses 9 through 20 were referred to by the church fathers were used in sermons by the early church fathers. The earliest was a man named Papias in 100 AD, who was a disciple of John, and Papias refers to words straight out of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. So I'm telling you, the first century church, they knew it was part of the gospel. So you can't just dismiss this stuff. This is part of Jesus' final debrief, this commission of grace Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What's interesting about Luke saying this is it seems to be summing up 40 days that these things were taught because we know Matthew says they were in Galilee when they heard the Great Commission. Mark says they were already on the Mount of Olives when they heard the Great Commission. And Luke seems to be saying, no, this was being commissioned throughout across 40 days. This commission was given and was summed up then on the Mount of Olives. There at the last, he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. The final debrief is a debrief of the Great Commission, a commission of grace. So put it together, four debriefs where Jesus is speaking, where his words are contained in scriptures. Four debriefs, peace, faith, love, and grace. This is what Jesus taught. These were the most important things on the heart of Christ after the resurrection. He debriefed, he reviewed, he secured, he established. I had a friend say just last week, I hadn't even thought about the fact that after his resurrection, he hung around for 40 days. And he did. It wasn't death, burial, resurrection, bye-bye. No, debriefing. Reviewing, securing, establishing them with the living hope for the rest of their journey and for ours. Now listen, last thing. Here at the end of this age, by biblical prophecy and calculation, I can say with, I think, assurance that the world is going to descend into an unparalleled time of tribulation. Right? Seven years, according to Scripture, a seven year tribulation. But Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Why? Why is he preparing a place for us right now? Why? Especially because we know, as the Bible describes, a literal thousand-year kingdom here on earth. Why is he preparing a place in heaven? Is it, some have called it, a heavenly honeymoon? While the earth goes through tribulation, the church, having been caught up, is with Jesus in a heavenly honeymoon. I think that's fantastic. I don't agree with that. Others say it's salvation from wrath. Exactly for you have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. But I wonder, might that period of time also be our resurrection debriefing? That during that time, as we are with him in the heavenly places, he is debriefing and reviewing and securing and establishing our faith so that we will be ready to take our places in the coming kingdom. Now that's a debrief I am not going to miss. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen.